Please stand by. We are about to begin. Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's ProAssurance Q4 year-end conference call. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. For opening remarks and introductions, I will now turn the call over to Mr. Frank O'Neill. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Carla. Good morning, everyone. We look forward to discussing the results for 2010 and the fourth quarter with you. First, I need to take care of a little legal housekeeping. We issued a news release on Wednesday afternoon reporting our results for the full year of 2010 and the fourth quarter. That release, along with our SEC filings, including the 10-K that we are filing this morning, are designed to provide you with important, detailed information about our company, as well as disclosures regarding forward-looking statements. We are explicitly identifying statements we make today dealing with projections, estimates, and expectations as forward-looking statements subject to various risks. This is especially true for any discussion of our transaction with American Physician Service Group. These risks could cause our actual results to differ materially from current projections or expectations. We will not undertake and we expressly disclaim any obligation to update or alter forward-looking statements, whether as a result of new information or future events, unless required by law or regulation. The content of this call is accurate only on Thursday, February 24, 2011, the date of first broadcast. If you're reading a transcript of this call, please know we did not authorize the transcript and we have not reviewed it for accuracy. Thus, it may contain factual or transcription errors that could materially alter the intent or meaning of our statements. One final reminder, we're going to reference non-GAAP items in our call today. We refer you to our recent filing on Form 10-K and our recent news release for a reconciliation of these non-GAAP numbers to their GAAP counterparts. Let me tell you who's on the call with us today. We have our Chairman and CEO, Stan Starnes, our President, Vic Adamo, Chief Financial Officer, Ned Rand, our Chief Underwriting Officer and Actuary, Howard Friedman, our Chief Claims Officer, Daryl Thomas, and our Chief Marketing Officer, Jeff Bowlby. Stan, will you start us off? Thank you, Frank. We're pleased to be able to report strong results again for the fourth quarter of 2010 and indeed for the full year. As I said in the news release, we think the results we've achieved validate the disciplined, long-term approach we take to every phase of our operations. And while we're confident that our shareholders and policyholders benefit from that long-term view, we also know that focusing on the long-term very often produces good results in the short term. That's certainly the case this quarter and this year. Frank? Thanks, Stan. Ned, will you give us your comments on the year and the quarter? Sure, Frank. With a full year to report, I'll focus on those results, but we'll mention the quarterly components where they have some bearing. For the year, gross premium written was $533 million, down 4% from $554 million in 2009. In 2010, the two-year policies accounted for about $16 million of the decline in gross written. There was also a one-time effect due to the redistribution of policy renewal dates. We did that in late 2009 to smooth out our workflow. In the fourth quarter, gross premium written was essentially unchanged from the same quarter in 2009. We did see $5 million of new premium resulting from our acquisition of American Physician Service Group. That acquisition closed on November 30, 2010 so we received the benefit of one month's premium as a result of the transaction. Our net investment result was $148 million for the year. 
While we did have more money to put to work, lower yields on the portfolio resulted in a decline of 3% from 2009's net investment results of $152 million. Total expenses were up 2% for the year, with half of the increase related to the effects of acquisitions. In 2010, we had an additional three months of PICA activity and one month of APS. We also saw policy acquisition expenses reported in the financial statements for PICA normalize in 2010 after seeing artificially low expenses in 2009 due to the effects of purchase accounting. Policy acquisition expenses overall are up as our premium earned from our allied healthcare business increased. This line has higher policy acquisition expenses than our physician premiums, but also higher return expectations. Net favorable loss reserve development was $234 million for the year compared to favorable reserve development of $207 million in 2009. Our 2010 net loss ratio was 42.6% for the year compared to 46.4% for, 2000, for 2009. Obviously, the fourth quarter saw significant development, which Howard will touch on shortly. That brings us to the bottom line. Operating income was $219 million in 2010, which is $6.82 per diluted share compared to operating income of $215 million, or $6.49 per diluted share in 2009. Net income for 2010 was $232 million, or $7.20 per diluted share. Fourth quarter 2010 operating income was $96 million, or $3.08 per diluted share, compared to $80 million, or $2.42 per diluted share in 2009. Fourth quarter 2010 net income was $102 million, or $3.28 per diluted share. We repurchased 1.9 million shares last year at a cost of $106 million. Almost 206,000 of those shares were purchased in the fourth quarter. We've purchased an additional 252,000 shares so far in the first quarter of 2011 and have approximately $194 million remaining from the $200 million authorized by our board in November of last year. Since 2005, we have spent approximately $315 million to buy back 6 million shares. The buyback had a beneficial effect on our return on equity this year. We achieved a return on equity of 13% for the year and 22% for the quarter. We calculate return on equity by dividing net income for the period by the average of beginning and ending shareholders' equity. Book value per share now stands at $60.35. And that number also benefited from the cumulative effect of our buybacks during the year, which added about $0.45 cents per share to book value. As you know, we think book value per share is the single best measurement of our progress as a company. And we're proud to highlight this year's increase of 15%, which continues an unbroken string of increases in year-over-year -year book value per share since we became public in 1991. In fact, since that time, book value per share has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 16%. Our tangible book value per share at year-end 2010 is $53.15, compared to $48.09 at, at year-end 2009. Our intangible assets at December 31, 2010 are comprised of $161 million of goodwill and $60 million of other intangible assets, $46 million of which we will amortize over time. A ratio of goodwill to total assets is 3.3%, up about one point as a result of the American Physicians transaction in the fourth quarter. Frank? Thanks, Ned. Howard, I know you have some comments to make on the net favorable reserve development, and would you also update loss and rate climate in general? Thanks, Frank. 
Our net favorable reserve development in the fourth quarter was significant, but in line with prior years' fourth quarter development. Given the size, I think our methodology bears repeating to hopefully answer any questions. Our independent consulting actuaries conduct two major studies each year, which complement the ongoing work that our in-house actuaries perform. Each quarter builds on the available data, and by the fourth quarter, we have a better picture of what another full year of lost data looks like. For the past three years, that analysis has led to significant development in the fourth quarter. But remember, it could just as easily go the other way if loss trends change. And also remember that the analysis we perform each year is consistent with prior year's analysis, but with an expanding pool of data. In the quarter, you'll notice a small increase in the current accident year loss ratio if you compare it to prior quarters this year. As part of our annual evaluation, we made some reserve adjustments having to do with the tail coverage we provide on death, disability, or retirement of qualified insureds. These are infrequent adjustments, and I don't see them as having a regular effect. The progression in 2009 was much the same, and taken together with 2010 is probably a pretty good guide for any projections of trends. On the subject of lost trends, I think we could essentially repeat the comments from any quarter last year and be reasonably accurate. The overall frequency trend is flat and has been so for the past two years. Severity continues to trend upward at about 4% to 5%, which is the same manageable and steady pace we've seen for the past several years. Podiatric severity trends have been slightly higher, mainly because of the scope of care provided by podiatrists is expanding. As a result, rates for podiatric business increased in 2010 and will likely continue that trend in 2011, but the average increase is in the mid-single digits. The slightly higher rates charged to podiatrists in 2010 resulted in our average overall renewal pricing being flat. This compares to a 2% overall decline in average renewal rate in 2009. We are continuing to evaluate the needs for rate adjustments in our other lines of business, and 2011 looks to hold more of the same kind of filings we made in 2010. Some slightly up, some slightly lower, but generally in the low single digits. Thanks, Howard. On the subject of premium dollars, I'd like to now switch to Jeff Bowlby, our Chief Marketing Officer, for a business review from 2010. Jeff? Thanks, Frank. We had our sales and underwriting executives in the office last week for a 2010 wrap-up session and to talk about 2011. The report we heard pegged the market as competitive, but not to the degree of the soft market that occurred 10 years ago. The heavy competition is isolated and seems to move around a bit. It's one company or another makes a push for new business. Writing new business is the real challenge for every MPL insurer. We were able to do that to some degree, writing a total of $21.7 million of new business in 2010. Premium retention in our Consolidated Physician Medical Professional Liability Book was 90% in 2010, the same as in the prior year. In the quarter, premium retention was 92% compared to 90% a year ago. When we can retain this level of business in a very competitive market, I believe it is a real testament to how much our insureds value what they receive in exchange for their premium dollars. And I'll remind you, because of the differences in our product, we are rarely the lowest premium in the market, so I think the retention ratio we maintained in 2010 is impressive. I'm confident that our dedication to the tenants of Treated Fairly are playing a visible role in that level of retention. In the almost two and a half years 
since we began to formally emphasize our commitment to treat it fairly. We've seen it grow in importance throughout our organization, and our agents and insureds are telling us it's increasingly a deciding factor in purchasing decisions. Frank? Thanks, Jeff. The other side of the underwriting and marketing coin is our claim success. I think it's another reason for our high retention. Daryl Thomas is our Chief Claims Officer. Daryl, can you give us some insight into the year in claims? Sure, Frank. We did not see any significant new trends in claims this year. The trial numbers, which lag claim numbers, continue to reflect the trends Howard cited. In 2010, we tried 354 individual files to a jury verdict. However, it's important to note that we continue to try the same percentage of files to claims inventory as in recent years. The real driver in the is the number of new claims coming in the door. With fewer claims, we can bring more manpower and more intensity to our handling of each claim. At year-end 2010, we had 7,921 open claims, compared to 8,123 at year-end 2009. In 2010, we received 3,977 new claims, just slightly higher than the, the 3,835 new claims 2009. None of the numbers I just cited include American physicians. Our trial win ratio this year was just over 74%, essentially unchanged from recent years. Given the significant number of claims we take to trial, including the tough claims that other companies almost always settle, this is a great result and one we believe benefits our insurers as well as our shareholders. Frank? Thanks, Daryl. Now over to Vic for an update on the American Physicians integration. Vic, can you also update us on all the talk about tort reform in Washington? Sure. Frank, I'm pleased to comment on the integration process at American Physicians, or APS for short. The process is going as smoothly as we could have hoped. I'll give credit to the executives and staff at APS for running a first-class operation and for being very supportive of the transaction and the transition. Just a few details. We have already integrated operating units such as underwriting and claims. Financial data was consolidated successfully for our year-end reporting. We are well along in the data systems integration project and anticipate that we'll complete that sometime during the third quarter. From a sales and marketing standpoint, many of the APS agents also represented ProAssurance prior to the transaction, so we hit the ground running. And given the ProAssurance capabilities with hospitals and clinics, we see real opportunity to expand these product offerings in the Texas market and add new policyholders. All in all, we believe this will be a real success story for ProAssurance. As for tort reform, we're seeing more movement and hearing more talk of national-level tort reform than we've heard in several years. The Health Act made it out of committee and seems assured of passage in the House. This bill contains a $250,000 cap on non-economic damages and other features of the proven micro-reforms that have benefited California physicians and their patients. A similar bill has been introduced in the Senate where the sailing has never been smooth for tour reform, even when the Republicans were in control. President Obama has mentioned federal tour reform several times recently, and events will unfold over the next few months that will show whether folks in Washington are seriously committed to real tour reform. We're participating in the process through our very active industry group, the Physician Insurers Association of America, or PIAA. They've been a leader in the push for tort reform at both the state and national levels. We'll be closely monitoring the debate as it unfolds. 
I know Stan has some interesting thoughts about tort reform, which come from his years as a practicing defense attorney. Stan? Vic, the climate in Washington is remarkable right now, and it's interesting to watch and listen to the debate about tort reform. But the leadership in the PIAA is right. You have to wait and see what emerges when these bills are finally considered. I caution everyone not to be seduced by the talk, but wait for real action. It's just hard for me to imagine the plaintiff's bar will allow meaningful tort reform to become the law of the land. It's just contrary to their interest, and things that are contrary to the interest of the plaintiff's bar are difficult to pass in Washington. The more problematic scenario is that something may emerge that some in Washington will call tort reform, but which won't live up to the expectations of those who demand real change. As we debate the future of health care in this country, I think it's important for us to achieve some sort of meaningful tort reform so that a physician who makes a decision based on her best judgment in the midst of a medical emergency doesn't spend years defending a decision she was forced to make in 30 seconds or less. While tort reform has attracted quite a bit of attention in the past two weeks, it's just in the talking stage. Where we have seen real change is in the structure of the health care delivery system. With or without the recently enacted federal changes to our health care system, the provision of health care in this country is evolving and will continue to change in ways that we really can't begin to imagine. The sheer economics of it demands some change. As I've said, we as a country can deliver far more health care than we can afford. As we attempt to rein in the cost of health care delivery, one of the most noticeable changes is the movement of physicians into larger groups or hospital-owned or affiliated practices. It is a fact that more than half of the physicians practice in one of those settings already, and the number will continue to grow. In fact, we lose more insurance to hospital programs than to any insurance company competitors. That's why we are so excited about the recently announced relationship we have formed with Ascension Healthcare the largest health care system in the United States. Under this arrangement, we will work with them to ensure private practice physicians at their ministry locations in Michigan. This program kicks off on April the 1st, and we're already meeting with those physicians. We expect to expand that program as Ascension sees fit to their other hospitals across the country. I'd like to publicly thank Jeff Bowlby and Howard Friedman who led a great team to organize this process and project and to demonstrate our enthusiasm for it to everyone at Ascension. This idea of risk sharing with hospitals and facilities isn't new, but adding the physician insurance component makes this an entirely new ball game. Hospitals and physicians have different expectations for their liability programs. We understand these differences and feel that we are uniquely situated to accommodate the needs of both. The vast majority of our competitors lack the balance sheet size or the experience in the hospital setting to participate in this new world of healthcare. We certainly can deliver a range of services, including an unmatched level of risk management that addresses these unique situations. We think that creates great opportunity for us in the future and our ability to lead in that setting will, we hope, allow us to continue reporting future results that are as impressive 
as those we have reported in 2010. Frank? Thank you, Stan. Uh, we'll ask Carla to open the line for questions, and then we'll uh, discuss the quarter of the year with you. Thank you. The question-and-answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, we ask that you please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. We will proceed in the order that you signal us, and we'll take as many questions as time permits. Once again, that's star 1, and we'll pause for just a moment. And we'll take our first question from Amit, excuse me, Amit Kumar with Macquarie. Uh, thanks, and uh, good morning, and uh, congrats on the quarter. Good morning, Amit. Uh, just, just quickly, uh, you know, going back to your opening comments on, on the federal tort reform and health care bill, I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that something might emerge which might not be the best option. Now, your pricing does not factor any any reform on a state level. And I'm just wondering, you know, if we do get some sort of a product, you know, uh, further down the road, d does it make it easier for your competition to compete with you uh, at that point, or, or does it still benefit you? Well, it's, it, it benefits our customers, and therefore it benefits us. Uh, one of the things that differentiates us from others is our ability and willingness and experience and history of successfully defending positions in the courtroom uh, when the physician did not reach the standard of care or cause damage uh, to the patient. Uh, most insurance companies settle the case and they don't try the case. With a pro-assurance product, you have an opportunity for vindication which becomes increasingly important to physicians as credentialing decisions and medical professional liability claims outcomes become increasingly publicly available. So that's important to physicians. Tort reform is needed so that the physicians have a system that they can have confidence will treat them fairly and will not subject them to unnecessary litigation or to lottery-style justice when they've done their jobs appropriately. So the purpose of tort reform is not to benefit an insurance company, us or any of our competitors. The purpose of tort reform is to assure the public with access to health care from physicians who can operate in an environment in which they feel they will be treated appropriately under all circumstances. Okay. Um I, I guess moving on to reserve releases, did any releases come from uh, APS? And maybe can you can you touch touch upon the time period, you know, in a bit more detail? Uh, I think you said it was 2007 and prior. Maybe just give us, uh, you know, where did the biggest uh, contribution come from? What years? That would be helpful. Hey, Matt, it's Howard. Uh, there were no uh, APS releases as part of the uh, reserve development. Uh, APS was in the group for only one month, and, and we did not have a, uh, a prior year reserve change for that one-month period. Uh, if you look at the reserve development, and I think we have some more detail on this that's coming in the 10K, uh, most of the, uh, well, the reserve development was really uh, 
predominantly, I guess you can say, in coverage years 2004 through 2007. 2006 and 7 were a little bit greater than uh, some of the other years, and I've just got the, uh, the 10K table here as well. The 2006 and 7 years uh, were the, the greatest uh, two-year period. We, we haven't broken into two-year blocks. 2004 and 5 were also pretty significant. You'll be able to see this when you look at the K, and it, it breaks it out into uh, into four groups. Looks like page 59. Page uh, 58, 59. I guess it just came across. I'll, I'll look at it. Um, then just to the final question I'll read you. On the new business, $21.7 million for 2010. I don't know if you have that number for Q4 2010. And can you sort of break that out between hospitals and your sort of, you know, physician group book? Uh, Amit, I don't think we're going to be able to break that out for you. And and do you have a Q4 number? Um, no. Maybe. Yeah, oh, we, we, we'll get it for you, Matt. Okay, don't, have it, don't have it at our fingertips. Okay, I'll circle back. Thanks so much, Anne. Congrats once again. Thank you. Mark Hughes with SunTrust has our next question. Uh, thank you. Stan, you talked a bit about the uh, a change in the uh, um, structure of the healthcare delivery. I think you've, you know the consolidation of practices, the physicians moving under hospitals umbrellas. But it seems like you're... Uh, retention continues to be quite good and improving, if anything. And I know we're in the midst of that restructuring now. Is, is how much of a risk do you think that really is? Well, it, it it's a reality, and it's part of our job to respond to that reality. And that's why we've developed products that we help that we think will help us continue with that level of retention. I mentioned uh, Ascension; it's the largest Catholic healthcare system in the United States, and our newest arrangement with Ascension uh, will permit us to retain physicians that across the country that we might have lost going forward. And similar arrangements will enable us to do the same thing. Mark, I'd remind you that the way we count retention, which is different than others, is we include all expiring premium uh, in that number. So we don't omit from consideration, for, exi for example, the premium of physicians who are retiring or become disabled or who move out of state. So we are proud of that retention number, and we think the, the migration of physicians into hospital systems uh, makes that an even more impressive number. But you are right. That is an issue. That's an issue we're seeking to address uh, in the products that we're delivering. Every MPL carrier in the country is at a fork in the road, and we have to either watch our uh, universe of customers move into hospital settings or we have to provide products that they uh, will find a value in those settings. Uh, and it's clear which path we've taken down that fork, uh, but we think it's necessary to do that if we're going to keep our attention where it is and write new business. Right. Did you talk about uh, the pricing, I guess, uh, on your core business, excluding uh, PICA? Um, we're uh, now in the third month of the, uh, the quarter here. Um, anything you can say about the pricing trend in uh, Q1, the, sort of the most recent look at it versus uh, what you experienced in Q4 or Q3? Mark, we really don't have 
anything that we can can give you at at this point. I think if we noticed something that was markedly different one way or the other, we'd be in a position to tell you that. But I don't see that we have any anything major in, in that regard. It's a continuation of the tr same type of pricing that we saw during uh, 2010, and at this point, we're making the same types of rate adjustments as I mentioned earlier, uh, relatively small fine-tuning type adjustments, a few points up or down depending on individual state loss experience and changes in investment yield and that type of thing. Uh, and on, uh, if you look at, at the, the year, um, whenever we've made any comments in the past with several quarters, it's been that the what we're seeing now is the same as what we've been seeing for the past few quarters in terms of competition and pricing. Thank you. All right. Carla, before we uh, take the next question, uh, in response to Amit Kumar's request for a breakout of, of data, uh, that's on page 53 in the K that gives you the breakout of year-to-date uh, new business, so we could get that as well. Yeah, for the position business, which is the predominant. Okay, Carl. Thank you. And moving on, we'll go to Beth Malone with Wonderledge. Good morning, and congratulations on the quarter. Um, a couple of questions. On, on the Texas expansion through the acquisition of American physicians, what, what is it that that ProAssurance can bring to the table that's going to uh, penetrate that market, or is it just that you're going to take advantage of the success that uh, American Physicians has already had in the Texas market? Uh, Beth, it's Stan. We're going to do both things. That is to say, we're going to continue to build on the success of American Physicians, uh, a well-respected MPL provider in Texas that has deep and long roots in Texas, and we think we're in a position to build on that business. We're also going to bring to the Texas market uh, an array of products and different options for physicians that perhaps they've not had in the past, and we think that combination of historical legacy business in Texas through American physicians and the new options and opportunities that we'll provide in the Texas market will provide the path for growth in that market. Uh, additionally, American Physicians did not write hospital business, and of course we've written hospital business for over 25 years. So we think the opportunities that will be created through this migration of physicians into hospital systems uh, really requires that an organization such as ours have the experience and the appetite and the will to write hospital business, and so that brings a new dimension to the, our now new Texas business through American physicians that did not exist before. Okay, and then on the Ascension uh, relationship, is that exclusive? Will you be seeking those kinds of relationships with other large hospital groups, or, or, or can you only do it with Ascension? Well, the, the, the relationship that is announced and in concrete is with Ascension, and it's in Michigan at the moment that kicks off April the 1st. And as the program evolves and healthcare evolves, we'll see what other opportunities that presents as we go forward. But for the moment, the, the relationship that is, in fact, in place and up and running is with Ascension and is in the state of Michigan. 
But it doesn't prohibit you from writing, doing the same thing with competitor hospital programs in other states? No, there's nothing we have signed that would prohibit us from doing that if the market permits it. Okay. And then uh, one question uh, for Howard, I guess. It's, it seems to be parental. I'm always surprised, but pleasantly so, by the reserve development that you all are able to release in these quarters. And my question is, should we really be viewing this as just a timing differential of when profit is recognized from the business written, that you're recognizing the profit that was generated from business written prior to 2007, and we should be looking at the results over a longer period of time than even one year? Uh, I think... Definitely, in, in the viability insurance business, uh, you have to take the view, a long-term view of, of recognizing your results, whether those results are profitable or, or not profitable. You make the estimate at the outset, and, and you really do find out three, four, five years later how, how accurate you are, and, and you make adjustments. So I don't think it's so much a question of recognizing profit on a delayed basis or, or anything like that, I think it's really more a matter of best estimate and making adjustments to that estimate as you go along and get more information. And we've always taken the view uh, in terms of taking a, a conservative position to start with, and to the extent that the data permits, uh, we recognize the results uh, when that data comes through, when we are closing claims at a significant rate and have a much better perspective on what a particular coverage year results uh, will be. And, and based on the payout patterns and the, the timing of our business, that really starts to become much more evident uh, three years or four years into the process. So do you find it um, a challenge to to uh, talk about this to your client base, these physicians that are paying a rate, and then later on realize that maybe that rate was a little bit higher than what the actual experience was going to be on their exposure? Do, do, the, do you get pushback that people want uh, price decreases to offset the higher prices they paid in the past? Well, I, I think that the, there is reality in that, in that um, the rate-making also reflects the experience, and as we get the experience uh, built into the rates, rates have tended to come down two, three, four years after the, the tide turns, so to speak, uh, and the results of frequency and, and severity uh, improved, and rates have been reduced. At the same time, looking back, Ten years ago, uh, when we were raising rates, uh, our clients weren't complaining about the fact that they underpaid in the 1995 to 1999 period. It, it's always a, a matter of making corrections as we go, both in terms of reserves and rates. The, uh, the discussions that take place, to be honest with uh, most clients, uh, relate to what the expectation is for next year, not so much of what happened to three or four years ago. Okay. All right. Thank you. Beth, it's Stan. I'd also suggest to you that if you were a physician and you're buying a professional liability product, the last thing you want is to buy that product from
from a company that is charging inadequate rates because that company won't be here four or five years from now when uh, the time that you need that policy uh, comes to bear. Okay, well, uh, kind of along those lines, uh, in terms of opportunities and acquisitions in the marketplace, do you see conditions um, changing for some of the less uh, companies that are, you know, less able to compete, and are they attractive for you, or would you prefer not to get involved with companies that are challenged right now? Generally speaking, Vic, generally speaking, um, the companies in the MPL sector are doing financially well. Uh, there's an increasing amount of top-line pressure as rates are going down, expenses are going up. And it, it's getting harder and harder for those companies, I believe, personally, to look forward and see the future for themselves. So I think there definitely will be opportunities out there. We continue to be interested in pursuing them. And um, our, our feeling of pro-assurance is there will continue to be consolidation in the MPL sector as we go down the road. And evaluate every opportunity on its own merit. Oh, yes. Everything stands on its own, of course. But, but from a – you asked sector question, I, I we, we believe there will continue to be consolidation in the sector. Okay. All right. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Mike Grasher with Piper Jeffrey. Hey, good morning, everyone. Congratulations on a great year. Uh, first question I wanted to ask was uh, the statutory surplus number at the end of the year. Mike, uh, just one second. We'll get that for you. Okay. I'll get that. You can go ahead. Yeah. Um, then a couple of follow-ups to the uh, to the hospital program and, and the relationship with Ascension. I guess the first question would be, what is it that's that's driving the migration uh, of docs to the hospital programs? And second question would be, what states are you seeing the most movement in currently? As to the cause of the migration. It's a confluence of several factors. One, the demography of medicine is changing. Uh, the physician today uh, tends to be less entrepreneurial than the physician 30 years ago. The physician today wants greater structure to his or her life. Uh, there are fewer physicians coming out of medical school and training that want to leave home at 5.30 in the morning and not have a clue as to when they're going to get home that night. Uh, the hospitals can provide schedules and structures that uh, have greater certainty than the typical private practitioner has enjoyed over the years. So that's one factor that's doing it. A second factor is reimbursement patterns are different for the physician in private practice versus the physician performing a procedure uh, as a hospital employee. That's serving to uh, incentivize the migration. And finally, uh, the practice of medicine is becoming increasingly bureaucratic. That is, there's a regulatory overlay uh, and a compliance overlay that many private practitioners uh, find overwhelming. They want to take care of the patients. They don't want to deal with bureaucrats. And so that makes it uh, attractive to a physician to go into a hospital, and the hospital will say, we'll take care of all the forms, we'll take care of the electronic medical records, we'll do all those things. So whereas when I started practicing law in 1972, there were fewer probably than 8% of physicians employed by hospitals today, that number is 50% and growing. So it's going to continue. Uh, you know, we saw back in the mid-90s 
some integration of physicians and hospitals, and ultimately most of that came unwound. This time it feels very different. Uh, this time I think it's going to stick. In terms of where we're seeing the programs, Jeff Bova can tell you better. Yeah, there's a variety of, I wouldn't say it's isolated to any one state or area. We see consolidation in rural areas. We see it in metro areas. It's really um, hit and miss. Some states are just a little more active than others, but not in anything of, of, that's remarkable to us. Okay, so no, no state with any particular program is driving it, or, or I guess uh, the tort law in any particular state would be driving it? No. Okay. No, and the other thing that's important to remember is, in our view, there will always be a significant number of physicians who are in private practice and following a model much as they are today. It's just that it's going to be a, a, a very large number, unlike in the past, that are with hospitals. And our challenge is to offer programs and products that appeal to both types of structure. And that's what we're trying very hard to do. And we think our ability to do that will be one thing that uh, distinguishes us in the future. Okay. And the statutory surplus, do we find yeah, that? Yeah, Mike, we, we've got a, um, just under $1.4 billion. So. Okay. I guess the final question here then would be um, if you're looking at something around $1.4 uh, I mean, it seems to me that you're sitting in an extremely uh, large excess capital position. Uh, can we uh, expect management to be a little bit more aggressive uh, and shareholder friendly in terms of managing capital? Um, I, I think that we are going to, first, we manage capital for the long term. We think that is shareholder friendly. It, it may be a longer term than, than you're looking for. We think the opportunity to put that capital to work over time will come. Um, as, we, as we mentioned on the call, we've put about $315 million, uh, million dollars back to shareholders and share repurchases over the last several years. Um, this, so far this quarter, we've repurchased 252,000 shares, um, and uh, we have an authorization of $190-plus million from our board that we intend to put to, put to use if circumstances permit us to do so. Now, it just seems to me that, uh, you know, if $1.4 billion, if you took $400 million of that um, through a special dividend, you'd still be at a risk to capital of 0.5 in, in still sitting in an excess capital position. And the, the acquisition opportunities that are out there, um, certainly uh, there seem to be quite a few from hearing Vic's commentary, um, but at the same time I have to think because of the fragmentation, they're probably all not really all that uh, large. Um, so just uh, seems to me that, there, that you do have an opportunity here to give more back to shareholders. I appreciate your, your comments. You know, the, the A rating that we have, especially as we start to, to look at the hospital market in a more serious way, um, is a real differentiator for us. We don't want to do anything uh, that jeopardizes that, that A rating. Um, the rating agencies take a very different view of what is excess capital than uh, we do, than our, our shareholders do. Um, and we're very mindful of, of the rating agency perspective on things. But we, we appreciate you sharing your perspective as well. 
And then just in terms of that, what sort of uh, risk to capital ratio would the rating agencies be looking at? No, it's not as, it's, Mike, it's not as simple as a premium to surplus ratio. There, there are a lot of factors that go into the rating agency model. The line of business matters. The duration of the liabilities matter. Um, the volatility of the line. We write in a line of business that historically has been very volatile. The rating agencies factor that into their models when they look at the premium we're writing and they charge a risk charge for the premium we're writing. They look at it when they look at reserves and they charge a risk premium for the reserves that we carry. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, we can talk about premium to surplus as a back of the envelope um, sort of thing, and we certainly have the ability to write at a much higher premium to surplus ratio than we write. Um, but it's, it's hard from a rating agency perspective to, to say what that number is. If you go back and look at some of our investor presentations, you'll see a slide in there that, that shows that the difference from the rating agency model perspective of taking a dollar surplus out versus putting a dollar of premium in, and they have a very different impact. A dollar of premium does not carry with it the same additional capital needs as the reduction of a dollar of uh, capital takes away from your from your solvency model um, with the rating agencies. Um, it's just the, so the models aren't linear and and they're not and they've got a lot of different factors. Um, you know, we believe we could write it close close to a one to one ratio, um, but that does not imply that you could take eight hundred million dollars of our capital out of the company and, and maintain an A rating. Understood. Thanks for the color. And now we'll go to Matt Rohrman with KBW. Uh, gentlemen, good morning. Uh, first question, I guess, for uh, Stan or, or Vic. Uh, obviously, as you guys uh, get more immersed in the Texas market, uh, you know, from all the data and, and folks I've talked to down there, it seems like things are going pretty well. Is it fair to say that, that uh, uh, as you've been uh, more entrenched down there, uh, the deal and the market have, have played out as well, if not better, than uh, you initially expected? Well, we you know we closed it November the 30th, so we're we're 90 days into it roughly. As Vic said in the his comments, we are very pleased with the transaction and the transition. Uh, we expect uh, that if we came back five years from today, we'll look back and say Texas has been a very good transaction for us, uh, and it's moving in that direction. But you know you can't you can't say after 90 days. Uh, that something has happened with certainty, but it could not be going any better. I'll say that. Okay, great. And then uh, just last question, um, Ned. I know you had mentioned that the uh, buyback in the quarter was going to be, uh, you know, a bit moderated just due to the uh, the acquisition. Uh, is 2010 a fair benchmark for sort of the general pace uh, in 2011? There. You know, a, a lot of it depends on kind of the opportunity to buy our shares. And what we've said in the past is that below book value. We're very aggressive buyers of our stock. Um, as the stock goes above book value, we do buy stock above book value. Um, it's dependent upon a number of factors. One is our forward view of book value. Um, another is, is our perception of our ability to replace that capital if we were need to replace it. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say. I, I think that you know, if circumstances played out similarly in 2010 with our stock than uh, during 2011 that the 2010 is a pretty good proxy. Okay. All right, great. It just depends on the market dynamics. All right. Okay, thanks, guys. Great quarter. Once again, that is star one. If you do have a question, and we'll take a follow-up from Amit. 
No, thanks. Uh, just just one uh, one quick follow-up. Uh, going back to the discussion on Ascension, now your your pilot program will have 1,000 physicians. Uh, uh, no, Amit, Amit, we didn't yes. say it was going to have 1,000 physicians. We said the market could be uh, of a certain size. We don't know how many we're going to have because it doesn't really kick off until April 1st, and that's when we find out how many we bring are able to bring in. Got it. So, so, so just expanding or, or staying on that fact, Ascension, you know, has access to 20,000 physicians. It's in 500 locations in 19 states. What I'm trying to understand is, you know, l l let's say after the pilot program, you know, you, are, you, you like the results. Is this, is this something which could end up becoming sort of a big driver for pro-assurance going forward? Or is this more sort of on the side? You're sort of exploring that market. The Amit, uh, the, the program begins in Michigan on April the first. Mm -hmm. uh, we will evaluate the program. I'm sure Ascension will evaluate the program, and we will make our individual and joint decisions about expansion of the program uh, as we see how the program develops in Michigan. I think it is fair to say that the program carries with it opportunity for pro-assurance and opportunity for ascension. But uh, we try to make it very clear that we're not in the prediction business, and so I'm not going to predict what's going to happen with ascension. I will say to you that we think the ascension relationship is the sort of relationships that have to be fostered among physicians and hospitals and professional liability writers in our space in order to accommodate the evolving and changing world of healthcare. So we, we regard Ascension with a lot of respect. It's the largest Catholic health center system in the United States. Uh, and so we think the program has a lot to do. Ascension is very professional. They're very dedicated to their physicians. Uh, we're very pleased uh, to be in this relationship with them. Uh, and we will attempt to execute the program in Michigan in a way that is very fair to the physicians in Michigan, very fair to Ascension, and then Ascension and ProAssurance will evaluate where we go next. Got it. And, and I guess a follow-up, and this might be premature, but how different are the loss trends for a charity hospital versus your core book? I'm at it, Howard. Um, I think two things. First, I wanted to make it clear that we're not insuring hospitals, uh, at least Ascension hospitals, as part of the program at, at this time. Uh, we're, we're just looking at the, uh, the physicians who are independent uh, physicians uh, who have privileges and affiliations with the Ascension hospitals in Michigan. The broader question on, in terms of, of for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals over the years, uh, the, the loss experience on an industry-wide basis between the two uh, have, has not really been significantly different. In fact, uh, if you look at the general rating indications and loss cost indications from ISO, uh, the statistical organization that compiles insurance results uh, for years and years, they had the same rates for, or the same loss cost indications uh, for for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals in most states. So I would not see a, a major difference there. Got it. That's, that's actually quite helpful. Thanks, and congrats once again. 
as a final reminder, that is star one if you do have a question. And our next question comes from private investor Leonard Cooper. And we're, uh, Leonard, let me uh, just tell everybody we need to ask that this be our last question because we are running up against a company-wide employee meeting that begins in about 10 minutes that we have to uh, address to discuss the results of the year and the quarter. So now, Leonard, please. Okay. One, an excellent report. I've never heard one of your company's reports before. Uh, about that dividend, uh, you may know better what to do with the excess cash than a person like myself, but I do have to go to the supermarket every week, so I can't be looking years ahead to the advantages of retaining the money. A dividend would be greatly appreciated, even a small one. Then. My other question, which my wife says you'll never answer, is are you ever a target of another larger insurance company seeking acquisitions? Our congratulations to your wife. All seriousness, our... Company policy is not to comment on any uh, potential, perceived, rumored, talked about acquisition activity, uh, whether it's in the exit door or in the entrance door. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, how about that dividend? Well, I think I think Mr. Rand uh, answered that as uh, as best we can in that uh, we do factor in a, a large. Uh, range of capital management alternatives, and I'd point out that we are significant owners, each and every one of us on the management team of uh, company stock, and, and we too go to the grocery store. So we would uh, just tell you we're doing what we think is in the best long-term interest of the company. And we constantly reevaluate it. Okay, thank you. And that does conclude our our. Excuse me, that does conclude our question and answer session for today. I'd like to turn it back to our speakers for any closing or additional remarks. That's all, Carla. Thank you. We'll look forward to speaking to everyone again in May when we release first quarter results. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude our conference call for today. Thank you for your participation.